Welcome to Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast, where we talk about how medieval and medieval-inspired movies, TV, and books depict the medieval world. What do they get right? What do they get wrong? And what do they tell us about how modern people see the medieval past? I'm Sarah Itch Decker, a medieval historian, and I'm joined by fellow medievalist and colleague Raisa Deronda to discuss the 1997 film Destiny. So Raisa, welcome. Thank you. Why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and why you wanted to slash consented to talk <laughs> about this particular film? Great. Yeah. So I'm obviously your colleague, as you mentioned. I teach um, Islamic studies at Rhodes College. I teach courses related broadly to Islam, a Muslim life, the Middle East, minorities in the Middle East, and the Quran by training and kind of expertise. I'm a scholar of medieval Islamic philosophy. So my first book that's coming out soon actually deals in part with uh, Ibn Rushd, the person that uh, is at the center of the film that you asked me to come and join you discussing today. Yes, and uh, this film we also, in fact, uh, taught together in uh, a class that we co-taught last semester. Mm -hmm. So now we get to talk to an even wider audience (laughs) about it. We get to share our trauma even with more people. (laughs) really why I came to talk about this movie because (laughs) I'm still trying to figure it out yeah I'm not sure I'd say rewatching it helped Uh. (laughs) no but maybe as we talk about it today we will discover some more aspects that make sense afterwards maybe so yes today we watched Destiny which came out in 1997 Mm -hmm. directed by Yusuf Shaheen we have uh, Nur al-Sharif as Averroes slash Ibn Rushd. Uh, this film makes the weird move that although the... So the film is in Arabic and the people who are speaking right. Arabic refer to him as Ibn Rushd, which is his you know actual name. These subtitles consistently use the Latinized Averroes. Yeah, and I wonder, I don't know, we weren't able to find out, but who made those subtitles, right? So yes. is that just, you know, some version of like self-generated maybe or English speaking and so they just default to using the Latinized, you know? yeah. Uh, uh, one thing I noticed, and I'm going to kind of bring it in at points that it's useful. So I looked at a bunch of the uh, reviews of the film that are available in Arabic. And one of the things they talked about was the fact that the whole cast speaks a really 90s heavy colloquial Arabic. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I remember when we watched it, I was kind of like, some of that Arabic is really weird. And as you know, I'm not a scholar of like contemporary kind of colloquial Arabic. But um even seemed a bit strange to me but yeah like a a significant amount of the review one of them focused on the fact that they would have expected a bit more of a you know (laughs) free modern tint to the uh, to the Arabic or kind of maybe more refined you know they didn't go into detail but it was definitely a point of disappointment that's kind of entertaining that like they they didn't even try uh no I mean you have more expertise than me on this I don't I mean, generally, I feel like English produced films about, you know, the medieval world, they try to have like this medieval speak, no? I think they do, unless they're overtly comedic or relying on deliberate anachronisms. Mm -hmm. And then that's, I think, part of the film, and it's often contributing to comedy in the film. Mm -hmm. And that's a really different, like, that's a really different feel, I think, like, like... 
as I said, when I think they use really modern colloquial language, it tends to be very deliberate. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think the other thing to say is that if my understanding, I wasn't able to uh, to get that much background really. Um, so the, the writer and director has been in the U.S. and it's kind of, you know, but Egyptian, has a bunch of other films. But I think this film was particularly marketed as a sort of like general entertainment yeah so so i almost wonder if the the choice of colloquialisms was maybe more in terms of making it relatable because yeah so much of the medieval arabic heritage is just very inaccessible i think to people Uh linguistically and of course uh just in terms of yeah so that conceptual relation so Mm -hmm. i I wonder if we can almost turn that into a positive thing yeah yeah And the other thing I will say as I'm kind of going through the cast a little bit is that I'm not sure ultimately I feel this film does well in terms of gender, but at the very least compared to a lot of the films I've seen set in the Middle Ages that are like, we have precisely one woman and we would rather die than see more than one woman with a name on screen. Mm -hmm. We do have Averroes' wife, played by Safiya Lamari, whose name is, uh, we do eventually learn, is Zainab. Mm -hmm. His daughter, uh, who I think is named Salma, is in the film as well. There is the Roma woman Manuela, Lila Eloi. I will just note briefly that the film does, at least in the subtitles, use the term gypsies throughout, which we will not subsequently be using on the podcast, but that is the term the film uses, which is sort of par for the course, certainly in Western contexts in the 90s. I feel like that wouldn't have been something people would have been particularly questioning. Right. I do remember, though, it was noticeable to our students. I mean, I think for them it was already very alienating i think alienating in yeah, terms of both absolutely. the linguistic choice and then also the depictions which i'm sure we'll get into but yes <laughs> if there's one thing i remember then it's the gratuitous depictions of like joyous roma dancing yes that had no connection to content so yes manuela. this film unexpectedly sort of a musical uh with manuela doing a lot of dancing and then a lot of the singing being provided by her partner marwan played by mohammed munir uh, other central characters include uh, Al-Mansur, who is the uh, Al-Muhad Caliph, played by Mahmoud Hamida, and his sons, uh, Nasser, played by Khaled El-Nabawi, and Abdullah, played by Hani Salama. Ah, my favorite couple of brothers. <laughs> With their relatable struggles mm-hmm. of, uh, my father wants me to do a war, but I just want to dance. Right. I feel like it's more of a medieval <laughs> trope, medieval movies trope. I don't know. I'm not sure the I just wanted to be part is. Yeah. <laughs> no. Actually, one of the reviews, I think there's a a, a scene, I, I'm sure we're not going to talk about it, but where Abdullah talks about his desire to dance and then Ibn Rushd says, you know, when I was young, I used to dance for three days. <laughs> one of the Arabic reviews just says, did he really? I don't think so. <laughs> Out of all the like historical inaccuracies that really bugged that reviewer, I've never come across any particular affinity between Ibn Rushd's thought and history and music or musical expression or musical dance, but that really bugged that person. Just kind of. It's interesting in this film that also, in addition to, and we'll talk about this more as we get into things, but there's very much a like very clear disparity in that like there are the religious fanatics who hate like philosophy and medicine but also hate like dancing unless it's like specifically very religious in focus and they hate like food 
and they hate medicine, and they hate basically everything. Right, I was just going to say, our, our fanatics are really committed in this movie to just being that. Yes. We don't really ever learn much about their agenda, you know, no. or their background, or really who they are, you know, or how they fit into this uh, fictitious version of Al-Andalus, but it is noticeable just how much they're against everything that isn't a literal veneration of the Quran. Yes. I think that that will be my summary of what they're involved in. You know? Yes. <laughs> Which is very much a simplification of even, you know, groups that were around that were more, say, you know, religiously conservative or opposed to the thought of Ibn Rushd or something like that. Right. So. I mean, I have no idea what they thought about dancing either. <laughs> <laughs> maybe they weren't into it but it is a very kind of strange what we call it a canopy or whatever of, like constellation yeah of, a constellation of all the things that they're against and they basically yeah. include anything but looking at the quran yes so the first segment of this podcast yes. is the uh, the enumeratio or recap where we uh, attempt to talk through <laughs> the rather convoluted plot of this film yeah I have to say, watching it a second time did not totally help me solidify certain aspects of the plot. I I acknowledge that might have been because I kept getting bored and taking naps, and so it took me like four hours to watch this two-hour, 15-minute movie. But I also think it's kind of the movie's fault. I did the opposite. So when I rewatched it, I just kind of wound quickly through it and like picked pieces out. So I did like the condensed version of what you did and it didn't help either. So I I don't know. Okay. Like we tried all the means, watching it with our students properly, watching it extra drawn out, watching it condensed. None of it helps. I feel like the one thing maybe you, that we kind of want to start, and that's also almost the most flabbergasting part of it, is this like strange framing with the Christian family. Yes, who feel very tangential to the plot and yet are also made central in a lot of ways. And never explained really why they are brought in, given that historically there's really no way to connect them meaningfully. So, I mean, I think it's important for other maybe listeners to understand that the film opens, right? I just remember the opening shot is on the face of this Christian man... In France, right? In Languedoc, yeah, yes. in southern France. Being burned alive. Yes. So we have to start with Christians. And uh, it's this guy who, while he's on the pyre, yells out to his son, Hey, Joseph, like, take your mom, get out of here. And he is sentenced to death uh, by order of uh, the church, or essentially a kind of papal inquisition. The reason he is being executed is for translating the works of the heretic Averroes, which I will discuss further later. Oh, you will. I mean, I, I just want to say, I, I initially, I remember thinking, first of all, when he was like Joseph, I thought, oh, here's a Jewish family. That yeah. makes sense. Nope. Why would you choose Joseph as the name for your Christian prophet? It's bizarre. They're fundamentally like... I guess Southern France, I can't say 100% for sure, but I can certainly say, like, in Catalonia, which is not that far away, where I literally, like, have spent, like, a significant portion of my life looking through contacts, which have, like, proper name after proper name after proper name, and genuinely have, like, never seen a Christian named Joseph. I think you can probably actually do studies on this, but my understanding of, like, the name Joseph for Christians, it's, it's like, a unique, I mean... It's like, for example, Southern German Catholics, mm-hmm. Bavarian. Joseph is really, really prominent mm-hmm. there. But I feel like that's almost it. 
Yeah, you know, and so, it certainly is not especially common. I mean, I think really even now no. in either the Iberian, either Spain or France. And as I said, it's something definitely like that in in Catalonia. It's like whenever I see the name that that name, it's like always. Why don't Marco or something, you know? Or right, right, Berenger. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> why that. not Berenger? <laughs> like, why Joseph? I ask you. Anyway, so that I mean, I remember just us sitting there while our students were there, just wondering when will they stop showing this guy being burned alive? Yeah. I mean, it was it was completely gratuitous. It seemed to never end, and then immediately it raised all these questions of like, oh, he's being burned for translating. Is this it's, like some sort of like? Yeah. Are we now talking about like you know? Thomas Aquinas, are we making a connection there? Like, I think maybe we were overthinking it, but it was just, it's just open with immediate confusion. And I was like, I, I feel like after that, I was already on a... It's immediate bed. confusion. And it's also very much like, again, in terms of tropes that I come across a lot in watching films for this podcast, it's very much like things were very violent back then. That like there's a lot of films set in the Middle Ages that open with some sort of oh, brutal execution. Like I actually just and this is early modern, but I actually just uh, rewatched the film Elizabeth, oh, mm-hmm. and that also begins with like a brutal execution scene of you know quote Bloody Mary executing the good Protestants. Mm, okay, so it was almost kind of like let's set the scene. This is where we're at. Yeah, so it's, it's oh. very tropey, is, was my feeling about it. Still don't understand why we have a Christian die for no. in Rush's works, but okay. No, it's we'll, very we'll silly. Give them that. Setting the scene. Yeah, so Joseph and his mother flee. Mm-hmm. Uh, the mother never gets a name and just inexplicably dies on the road in like two minutes. I mean, first of all, I, as we'd already discussed at the time, she looks like she's not going to make it th- around the next corner. But I also had this like, you know, quick overtones of like the story of Ruth. And, you know, mm. how the men in that story, like, their names already sell. They're, like, sickly and ill. And then mm-hmm. they die, like, a verse later. She's exactly that. She doesn't even get a name. Like, she yeah. flees for one second and then she just yeah is gone. And it's, like, very unclear. It's, like, what what's wrong with you? Why what did she you die? die of? Like, are you sick? In which case, maybe you shouldn't be, like, dragging her over the Pyrenees. Is she just, like, did she just, like, die of a broken heart? Like, which is also ridiculous. So, okay. We have no idea. But she's dead. But luckily, Joseph makes it, no? Yeah, so he gets to freely go, and and he uh, he apparently just uh, blindly walks from uh, southern France to Cordoba in the south of what is now Spain. Uh, You know, I'm going to look up. I'm going to look up how long that walk would take. Oh, yeah, take a... I mean, didn't we guess it was, like, something, like... Multiple days? Yeah, days, I'm just, I'm just going to, like, quick Google this, actually. Okay, so... This would be the internet. Where in... I think, I mean, at this point, we can note that while the film is set in Arabic, we never wonder or discuss how Joseph seamlessly makes his transition to living in an all-Arabic-speaking community. Yes, because you would think that he would either... I mean, potentially not know Arabic at all. If he knows Arabic, it would be very much, I would imagine, like a kind of like learned Arabic being used specifically for translation purposes. It honestly doesn't make sense. I, it honestly seems unlikely to me that he'd actually have the Arabic, even if he's learned it at all, to be able to like ask for directions and haggle at a market, which is what we see him doing. Also, it would take uh, 10 days. 10 days. And that's well, like 10 days, like from start to finish. So presumably more, more in terms of like the fact that you have to stop and sleep in the middle. Yeah. So, so it would be like a couple like, of weeks. Yeah. Three weeks probably. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think this whole opening thing and story of Joseph connects to this larger point that I'm sure we're going to get into, but like 
Why are we seeing Christians but no Jews? Yes, there are never any Jews at any point in this film, despite the fact that there is a significant Jewish presence in Langdok, there is a significant Jewish presence in Cordoba. They are very important in the study of philosophy at this point, They're and they in, just do not exist. And I mean, we get this whole job, like, you know, Joseph's father dies for like, supposedly translating, let's say, being involved in the reception of Ibn Rushd. Later on, they take Ibn Rushd's works, so to speak, across the Mediterranean, right, into mm-hmm. North Africa, I guess. Into Egypt, I think. Yeah. Because we have the uh, the locating shot of the pyramids. Oh, so Egypt. Well, Egypt. I, yeah, exactly. But, n- you know, even there we have the reception, right? And these are all the moments you would naturally think of the Jewish reception. Yes. Of Ibn Rushd, which, which historically, of course, not. is crucial. There are no uh, Jews in no, this movie. There are no Jews. There are no, you know, and instead we have the gratuitous Roma population. Yes. So we'll no, keep no talking about that. But yeah. yeah, it is. It is interesting that especially also because like one of the the daughter um, of the in the Roma family is named Sarah, mm. which also feels very like, hmm. Yeah, maybe those are like Joseph and Sarah. <laughs> right. This like, like weird biblical, like pseudo biblical couple that we've like plopped it, like that we've like plopped in. It's it's very odd. Joseph shows up and in like two minutes he's like haggling at the market and then gets to like hang out and like join Ibn Rush's family and mm. they like him because he has very pretty blue eyes. Mm, yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, they all have a lovely time. And in the like We never get told why he actually no. decides to go to Ibn Rush. I mean, like did he write to him? Did Ibn Rush know he was coming? Did Ibn Rush know his father? He just like shows up and he's like, My dad got killed for translating your books. I live in your house now. Yeah, that shows you a danger of writing books, huh? <laughs> somebody knocks on your door tomorrow. <laughs> I mean, it puts the academic life in a different perspective. But yeah, we never get told, did he ever read any of Ibn Rushd's works? I mean, and who is this guy and why is he needed for this film, I ask you? If he, you just wanted to make a film about Ibn Rushd. I know, he does not need to be in this film. It's ridiculous. Okay, anyway, so yeah, now Joseph is living with the Ibn Rushd family. Which also essentially includes, so in addition, there's Ibn Rushd and his wife and his daughter, and then there's like all of these Roma who hang out, and the two sons of the Caliph basically right. like pseudo live in his house. Yeah, and I think the vibe we're meant to get is that like, you know, Ibn Rushd's family is that house where everybody goes to hang out, you know? And yeah. They get accepted, and Ibn Rushd generally is kind of the good man of this film. Maybe we should say this yes. actually to be very clear. I mean... If any of you know anything about Islamic philosophy or the study of Islam, Ibn Rushd is not necessarily the good guy, right? Particularly if you think about, right? You know, the the, the Islamic reception of, of Ibn Rushd. There's there are large debates about you know how Islamic he really was uh, as a thinker, despite the fact that of course in during his lifetime he had held important um, roles as a Muslim in his community. But in this film, he is the good guy. I mean, yes. he's fun, he's smart, he's making social change. And he has all the kids in the neighborhood hanging out themselves. Yeah, and that's the thing also that, right, I mean, regardless of what you think about Ibn Rushd's thinking and its value or whatever else, uh, there is not any particular, as far as I know, evidence or reason to believe that he was just, like, the nicest man in Cordoba who, like, yeah. adopted all of these, like, stray teens. No, I mean, the, 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 <laughs> the I have never come anything, I have to say, I'm not that interested in his personal life. I've never been, I've never come across anything related to that storyline. I mean, the only thing that is really, if we think about Ibn Rush's personal life, significant is his relationship with the caliph, right? Yes, which we will see. Yeah. But um, as far as I know, that doesn't include the caliph's dance-hungry son. <laughs> yeah, so 
All right, so we have the we have the the caliph, right? And Ibn Rushd has like his relationship with him. They play chess. They're sort of buddies in at the beginning of the film. And the caliph is like despairing of his sons because Nasser is only interested in horses and girls. Yep. And Abdullah just wants to dance. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Which is a major plot point of the film. <laughs> that yeah. The younger surprisingly son of the so. just wants to dance. <laughs> I really. I mean, you've had your ideas about this, but it's, it still genuinely surprises me. We also it's also like unnecessarily detracts from what supposedly is the point of the film, which is Ibn Rushd. Yes, that we have this weird plot point about the Caliph's son and his dancing. His dancing, and I mean, actually both of the Caliph's sons are kind yes. of annoying plot points. I mean... And their romantic lives, exactly. too. I was just going to say, Nasser... Nasser has, like, I mean, Nasser will be in this love triangle, <sighs> basically. I mean, well, it's not really a love triangle, because for it to actually be a triangle, the men would have to also be interested in each other. Oh, yeah, no. Uh, so it's a love angle. So we have this... <laughs> that doesn't sound nearly as good, but sure, it's a love angle. <laughs> so we have the... This is, like, my, like, new pet peeve that I, like, won't call it a love triangle oh. Unless, like, all three people actually have, like, a thing. Because then there's no, like, third line of the triangle. Anyway. I feel, I feel really interested in this question because I feel like the majority of things that are considered love triangles don't actually have all three I know. People. All right. Never mind. Okay. You're is, changing I know, and the course my of history. Pet anyway. Um, so, yes, go on. The Because that's not how a triangle no. works. So, the, <laughs> the, the love angle that um, both Joseph and Nasser are interested right. in Ibn Rush's daughter, Salma. Mm-hmm. And then Abdullah is in love with the Roma girl, Sarah. Right. Right. And also really, really into dancing. dancing. Let's not forget that point. And in addition to that, the other... Okay, it's actually really unclear to me if Marwan and Manuela are supposed to be Sarah's parents or if they're just, like, all chilling. Yeah. Honestly, like, the family relationships there are really okay and to they're me. never clarified, but I think that... I guess the, the idea is that they're, like, the parental figures or, like, the good older... Yes, but I'm not sure if they're, like, biologically meant to be her parents or not. It is unclear. Yeah, I would would put it (laughs) Like, sometimes it seems like maybe they are, and sometimes it does not seem like they are. I don't know. It's very weird. Yeah, and there's also, like, some, like, weird kind of you know, sexual tensions that are being, you know, with with the two of them. Yeah. So it's also kind of you know, I yeah. didn't appreciate it. It's very odd. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, okay. So we have the love angle. Yes. We have Abdallah's dancing. And then, of course, we have Ibn Rushd and his friendship with the caliph, who is kind of a, as you know, rulers go, he's, he's a weak personality. Right? Yeah. He's kind of a pushover. Yeah. And our main problem is, of course, that there's a growing radical sentiment in, yes. in the community that and in particular the sect right of like right. people who are conveniently wearing green so we know who they are right <laughs> and they are led by this ominous figure almost Jafar wipe yes the sheikh yes and um they are opposed to Ibn Rushd and kind of his growing popularity and opposed to the caliphs yes uh, lending his ear to ibn rushd and they they have they did play chess together isn't that or something uh ibn rushd and the caliph yeah played, yeah exactly like, chess and so there's like you know there's about his disappointing sons exactly there's a kind of you know they have a close relationship and of course the sheikh and the opposing religious group they they disagree yes I do have to remark in terms of the dancing yeah. on the fact that we have an extremely extended, like I think solidly 10 minute dance sequence. 
where they're in this like Roma bar, oh, I guess, gosh, yeah. and they like recite poetry and like everybody <sighs> dances. They're like basically dancing flamenco. Like I've been to this dance performance like in yeah. Granada and it costs twelve dollars and there's a buffet. Yeah, no, like, it's, it's yeah. I don't know if it's meant to be for comic relief or. I don't understand if this movie is supposed to be funny, actually, or not. (laughs) I think it's going to be entertaining, but also informative. But I think the larger question, it does also at the end seem to make like a, want to make like a political point almost. So it doesn't do a good job of keeping on that point. So don't we also have the Amir? Yes. Yeah, so there's also that, like, so there's the guy who he, like, used to, I think, also be a judge, and then Ibn Rushd found out that he was, like, guilty of bribery and, like, had him, like, kicked out. Right. And now he is, I guess, siding with the sect so that he can have his position restored. Right. Right. There's a lot of, I would say, poorly explained political intrigue. And a lot of kind of, you get the sense of, uh, I mean, it's throughout the movie, it really plays on the fact that we are meant to be very kind of afraid and suspicious, of course, of this subversive conservative element that is gathering a unclear amount of sinister male lead figures yeah are kind of in their surrounding but unfortunately i remember this from our discussion with our students it's historically confusing who they're meant to represent right yes because it is clear i mean we do have the Amorhad Amoravid i'm gonna say transition of power mm-hmm. in al-andalus but the sect and the caliph and Ibn Rush don't really match on to that at all. No. And then we also have the element that the sect is really actively involved in this, like, insidious cult-like recruitment right. that feels very much like we're in, like, a, like, 20th, 21st century, like, terrorist cell. But with the very strange added benefit of that they are also involved in these ritual practices, right? Yes. That are, to me at least, look like versions of Islamic mysticism of right there's Sufi that kind of ritual. weird Sufi ritual yeah. element which is the opposite of really you know, makes sense it yeah. doesn't make sense if you're like a hardline fundamentalist sect right that is against dancing and you know reading the Quran with an ounce of reason and this is then one of the things that right is attract because one of the big deals right is that they try to recruit Abdullah right and are initially successful and it seems like maybe one because of the, of the dancing but it seems like that's one of the reasons that it's so successful right is that first they're like oh well, we have to pray for like the excesses that like we dance too much and he's like but dancing is great and they're like yes as long as it's like dancing for Allah and right. so they have to like do these like ritual like prayer with dancing and he gets to like do his like fun hair flip move there and is having a great right. time. Right. So it's like the, you know, it's like the first stage where like the cult seems really fun. Right, right. No, no, no. That's true. I mean, it's, it's also commentary on how it is to enter a cult. Yeah, I, that's right. They are getting him with the with the dancing. Um, yeah, but they also, I mean, so that we don't forget that they are serious, they also stab Marwan. Yes. Which, like, very disturbing. I mean... Very disturbing. And also this person, like, straight up, it looks like they stab him in the heart. It does not make sense that he doesn't die at the no, stage. No, it does not. It does not. And, I mean, I just want to say, like, it almost feels, like, repetitive at this point, but this, too, seemed unnecessary. There are so yes. many moments in this film when you're, like, you're still trying to figure out what the film is about, and then you get all these, like unnecessary flesh it's it's the roma dancing buffet it's the stabbing it's the it's the sex weird dancing situation i mean it just 
Yeah, and there's all of these additional, like, weird political things that are also, like, again, not fully explained. Like, there's a major subplot around the fact that, so we have the people of the sect who attacked (sighs) Marwan, and they're obviously from the sect, and the caliph sort of both is trying to appease the sect, but also wants to seem like he's strong, and so he wants them to be executed. But Ibn Rushd is, like, such a nice guy and so generous that he doesn't want to execute them, so in his capacity as judge, he just sentences them to imprisonment and is, like, trying for, like, rehabilitation of these, like, poor indoctrinated youth. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's meant to be a hallmark of his enlightenment, but of course, I mean, the any kind of pre-modern stance on on capital offenses and capital punishment uh, is pretty consistent and... Right. I mean, and, like, imprisonment isn't really Mm. much of a thing in this context. Like, the idea that they're being sentenced to five years in prison also doesn't really... I mean, there are confinement, right? Like, we we have people be confined, but it's more for, like... It's, like, pre-trial, right? Yeah. So, I think, yeah, that... And isn't there at the end also the isn't there a continuous pressure of like a war? I mean, there is of this. Yes. And somebody is secretly working with the Christians who are going to be attacking, but it's sort of unclear. Right. I think the Emir Sheikh, though, that whole kind of leadership of the sect, is trying to undermine the caliph and use the Christians to topple him. Which doesn't, which also doesn't seem like it makes sense that this, like, quote, religious fundamentalist sect is also, like, working with the Christians. No. Like, that no. doesn't, like, that seems very... And grabbing for, and trying to get rid of the caliph. I mean, yeah. it just, especially because the caliph isn't a particular, I mean, he's a friend of Ibn Rush, but it's not like he's... Yeah. Deeply influenced by him. No, I mean, it's all very odd. Which, historically, the his Ibn Rush friendship... That we have a sense that the caliph himself was more enlightened. One of them. Right. And so, or I would say enlightened, was interested in some of like Ibn Rushd's work and, you know, particularly in the influence of Aristotelian yeah. thought. But this figure in the film, I mean, he just... He just seems like he... He just seems like he kind of just doesn't know what he's doing. No. Honestly. No, like, he... doesn't get that much screen time either, to be honest. Yeah. And it's, like, very unclear. Like, it's unclear either why he likes Ibn Rush to begin with or why no. he turns against him in a lot of ways. Neither of those. I mean, and that's... I remember when we talked about this in class a while back. I mean, for, to me, that's the only, like, maybe slightly realistic part of the confusions is that we do not understand, really, what right. happened at the end of Ibn Rush's life. He did... You know, he used to reside in favor... Then he falls out of favor, he gets banished, he gets reinstated and then dies, essentially. Mm-hmm. But, I mean... Someone could make an argument that, like, okay, that's something that needs explaining and we're coming up with a fictional explanation for it, but one could have come up with a fictional explanation more grounded in things oh. that we actually know happened, as opposed to this where it's just, like, why don't we make up, like, 12 other things to explain it? Yeah, I was more taking in the direction of the fact that, you know, in this film it's confusing what happens, just mirrors how in reality it's confusing. So yes. I was going for the absolute lowest common denominator here. So, yeah, yes. no. And I mean, I, th- I don't know if we're ready for this yet, but, you know, Abdallah gets drawn into the sect. Mm-hmm. And we also have the people who were accused uh, or who were, who were convicted of killing Marwan or, oh, of, uh, or of attacking Marwan yeah. are like, <clears throat> like their suicide is faked. Oh, oh God, I forgot about that. Oh. That whole thing, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so we have that, and it's, like, this weird, like, on the one hand, the caliph is, like, supposed to be kind of hard line, but also he's kind of siding with the sect, but he's, like... It's it's very confusing, right? But what what we can see is tensions are starting to boil against Ibn Rushd, right? 
Yes, and so they're also worried at this point about the fate of Ibn Rushd's books. Right. So first, uh, Joseph, our resident Christian, just goes and basically hides a bunch mm-hmm. of copies of his books in sacks of flour, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so that then when the house is set on fire mm-hmm. and you know much of and a lot of what's in it is destroyed, the you know the books it turns out are are okay because they were in the flour. Yes. And then basically, there's a whole thing that they're trying to like make I think they're making other copies of the books and are like starting to make plans to transport them elsewhere. And Joseph decides that he's going to go back to France. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also confesses his love at this point to Ibn right. Rush's daughter, who yeah, is not here it. for it. She is into Nasser. Very embarrassing, but yeah. now we have to watch that for no reason, really. Mm-hmm. Right. And he, he also very, like, aggro kisses her. Yeah, And yeah, I, I she's just kind of, of, like, standing there. It's yeah. uncomfortable. She's like, sorry, no, sorry, bye. Yeah. So at this point, they also decide they're going to capture and de-indoctrinate Right, that's what I've been waiting for. The, like, (laughs) really interesting commentary on how to welcome radicalized people back into our midst. Yes. So they make... The answer is dance. (laughs) The answer is dance. They are able to recapture Abdallah in a really horrendous scene. Oh, and we haven't even talked about like when Ibn Rushd invents that weird telescope. Yeah, there's the weird telescope that he invents, and they're vaguely like, Al-Hazan came up with this idea for a telescope, and like now we have it, and it's a whole thing, which I'll talk more about later. Oh, you want to talk about that? Okay. But we have that. We also have the weird bit where like Marwan and his wife or girlfriend or whatever she is just like have sex for a while gratuitously in. We also then have in the the countryside. In the countryside, but also okay. Okay, so the whole thing, right, this, like, the, like, cult indoctrination sect stuff, it's always in the desert. What desert is this? What is the desert on the outskirts of Cordoba? I don't know. (laughs) Because there is not a desert on the outskirts of Cordoba. Again, I'm trying to give this, like, a symbolic (laughs) reading, so maybe it's talking about, you know, like, the ways in which certain... Uh, more puritanical interpretations of Islam have come, like, you know, in the 18th and 19th century from more sandy places. (laughs) Maybe this is already too. too I mean, I I think that probably is what it is in some ways, right? But is then is like is this additional weird a historical touch that we're supposed to be in this like relatively specific place of Al Andalus? So they never say we're in Cordoba, do they? Um, no, I don't no, think they actually I think do. I think contextually they yes. should be in yeah, Cordoba. No, I, I think uh, we, we recontracted that, but there's never. It is almost Aladdin-like levels yeah. of Oriental scene setting yeah i mean maybe this is also not the time before we get to abdallah's rescue and de-radicalization that of course we are dealing with incredibly free presenting costumes yes the costumes are a lot and not a lot of them cover a lot of things the women's. Yes. 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 Oh, of course. Yeah. I have to be obvious to <laughs> the me. The men but... have appropriate coverage. Oh, the men the, are fine. Uh... But yeah, I think one of the things that, again, the Arabic reviews were highlighting was just, I mean, people were outraged in in the Muslim world about just, you know, how badly Ibn Rushd's life was being represented and how little his thought, you know, received yes. any. It's um, really unclear, actually, throughout the film, what Ibn Rushd actually thinks and why some people are so mad about it. Exactly. And I mean, there's very little emphasis on his philosophical work. I mean, it's 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 almost the only thing we get is that, you know, he has sort of like liberal, symbolic interpretation of the Quran, maybe, you know? Ooh, right, or I think but, he says something like, you have to use reason when right. reading and interpreting the Quran, yeah. which is like pretty the, yeah. minimal as like a point and is like 
actually not that controversial in some ways, right? And so, like, all of the things that are actually controversial about his thought just, like, kind of aren't there. No, and this is actually in contrast. Remember when we watched The Physician? Yeah. He did a somewhat better job yeah. of highlighting... Uh, in that case, Ibn Sina's um, particular philosophical commitment. Yeah. And his kind of run-ins with more traditional theistic ideas uh, in the in the Islam. But with Ibn Rush, there's nothing. I mean, no. we get nothing. There's nothing on his own commentary work. There is no mention of Greek philosophy. Of So anyway, how did we go on that? Oh, yeah. So they, that was something that the Arabic reviews, they mentioned, you know, that the fact that it's just horrendous how badly they get Ibn Rush in this film, but also just how how inappropriate the costumes are. Yeah. Both, you know, for the context and maybe even for some of the contemporary viewership. I mean... Mm -hmm. Uh, and this is not some just the are, Roma women. But no, no. Like, Ibn Rush's daughter and is, wife. like... And wife. Yeah, like... and But, like, the daughter in particular, like, she looks like she just, like, did a shopping spree at anthropology. Like... <laughs> I don't know. No. And it also... I mean, also, Ibn Rush is really cool with her, you know, having a boyfriend, basically. Yes. Two boyfriends, <laughs> arguably. So, yeah, it's... Ibn Rushd was really the, the cool dude of the neighborhood. Yeah, he's um, just, like, totally fine with, like, all of these, like, sexy teens making out in corners of his house. I guess that is the model. <laughs> yeah, so Abdallah is sucked into the sect, subsequently rescued. One of the, you know, tenser moments of the film, I would say. It's very dramatic, because Marwan, like, takes the uh, the sheikh hostage, right? And, um, you know, has him, like, at knife point so that he can, like, get Abdullah onto the horse. I was just going to say, and horse, of course. I mean, yes. if you're any kind of meaningful uh, Islamic drama scene, you have to have a horse. It's got to be a horse. So, yeah. <laughs> also medieval drama scenes, yeah, I would probably, say. Like, there, there's, a, there's a high level of horse presence. Yeah. And then... Abdallah gets put into his sobering cell. Yes, where people like dance and sing outside the cell, and he is, uh, he's healed by the, they try to heal him with the power of dance, and he's like in his cell and he's tied to a chair and is like starting to like get up, like, like with like the chair still like attached yep. to him because he's tied to the chair and like dance and he like does his hair flip, and then they like throw up in the window and they're like, oh, and he's like, and he's like, you'll be dancing in hell. Exactly, and he's, he's really, we see him fighting the two, you know, powers within him, the newly installed uh, fanaticism and his, of course, deep physical almost... Uh, love of dance. Love of dance, yeah. <laughs> he just wants to dance. Yeah, he can't contain it. Um, so. Ultimately, however, what does actually bring him back really is that uh, the sect shows up and uh, I guess as, a rec as, you know, in response to the insult right. by, you know, that he almost killed their sheikh, it, they, you know, they uh, kill Marwan. Right. Who who really, we spent a lot of time watching this particular gentleman get stabbed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, I, again, not sure I needed to see that. No, yeah. no. So, you know, Abdallah feels guilty. He and, like, Ibn Rush, like, have a fight about it for a while. Ibn Rush, like, nearly chokes him to death, which is, like, a weird move that it's, like, his only time that he's not super nice. He, like, almost chokes a guy to death, and it's, like, a real sharp yeah. turn. So Joseph, meanwhile, oh. has a uh, walk to France. <laughs> Joseph is really the walker in this film, yeah. <laughs> and at some point, he's, like, on a kayak, but, uh, and, like, makes it over the first waterfall with the books intact, but eventually the books do, in fact, get soaked, and he Except loses a bunch of one. them. 
well, he finally shows up and he opens a book and somebody's like, read to me from the book. And he opens it up and it's like kind of waterlogged. And like, you can see like the script is kind of like straight. And he's like, guess I'm going back. Really, I, I don't understand the deeper point of Joseph. I mean, yeah. But yeah. at least he's, I mean, what, what, what you can't fault him for. He is committed to Ibn Rush's books, even though we never know what's in them. But, you know. We don't know what's in them. We, we don't know why he's committed to the books. really caring about them. He so. don't know if he's ever read the books. No. I mean, we sort of no. assume he probably has. Though then again, how? You know, but. Yeah, given that his father tra- but maybe, maybe, yeah, maybe he comes sense. from a family of Arabic speaking southern like, French Christians in context yeah like I the whole thing I'm not sure historically makes like a ton of sense but it's I can at least sort of buy in context that if his father knows enough Arabic that he has been translating Ibn Rushd it makes sense to me that he has like learned some, some Arabic yeah okay good yeah um, <laughs> but this man clearly goes to great lengths yes to protect Ibn Rushd's work which I should say as far as I understand there is no account of Ibn Rushd's books being threatened in his lifetime I mean no I I've been you know I'm just like trying to didn't forgetting anything but no I mean and in fact we have a very good I mean, there are losses, of course, and it's interesting in the reception of Ibn Rushd's work how much certain works are received in, say, in the Christian or Jewish milieu and some, how some of them are um, predominantly carried on in Arabic. But So there are like, differences in the communities, but we have a good you know, reception. It's not like... Yeah. And even that, like, to the extent that there were, like, book burnings, a lot of book burnings tend to be, like, very symbolic. Yeah. Like, yeah, it's like we're going to burn, like, a copy of each book, not like we're going to, like, go around and find every copy and make sure that we have wiped out the existence of this work. But not in, in his lifetime. I mean, he mm-hmm. he was yeah. really in a incredible, and he comes from a family also of, of having, you know, um, inher- inherited and inhabited the, the mm-hmm. highest uh, role being the right. grand um, judge. I mean. Right. I mean, he's extremely well respected. In the Muslim community. Ex- yeah. You know? And his works are extremely well respected. And also, I mean, even like the, and we'll talk about this more in a moment, but like even the controversies in, you know, the Christian context over his work are actually quite a bit later. Right. As right, well. Right, that right. like at this point, like to the extent that they're aware of Ibn Rushd, they're like basically like this seems cool. Right. right, and I mean, we do have, you know, the, the kind of controversies, let's say, with Al-Ghazali and what we think of as more the orthodox right. theologians that will um, kind of dominate most of his reception, but no dancing and no uh, yeah green dancing sect, man. No. That'll be my summary. Yeah. So Nasser says the, the right. Khalid Swansi is going to take the books to Egypt. We have the mm. whole scene where, you know, it's clarified that he and Ibn Rush's daughter are in love. Mm. It's like when when I come back, my trousseau will be ready. Hopefully, all of her trousseau will look like she bought it at Anthropology, and that's why she'll be able to get it ready so quickly. Yeah. Uh, um. It's also the uh, the scene is great because you know. So he goes to Egypt. There's like, do you did you catch the name of the person that he gave the books oh, to? Because no. it was also this like thing where I was like, okay, not that it's accurate but at least I feel like it would have like sort of like conceptually made sense if he'd given his books to like Maimonides given that he's right, going to right, Egypt right, specifically right, right, right. right I was like that would have been a really interesting move but no it's like some it's some guy they do say his name I didn't quite catch it I'm not quite sure who he is yeah I don't remember I, I don't really they say their name yes okay. very briefly but as I said I didn't catch well, it I and I absolutely refuse to rewind yeah so I almost I want to go back now and like make sure but yeah I mean what 
just so confusing. Because that's the thing, too, right? Is that he also, like, he gives the books to one very specific person, and we have the whole, and then we have the whole, like, close-up of, like, each book on the shelf. Right. Like, I guess, I mean, maybe this is just a nod to the director's home, you know, like, the fact yeah. that it's an Egyptian movie, and Egypt yeah. kind of becomes the, which there is a, there's also, actually, out of Egypt comes in the 20th century a strong avarism revival and uh-huh. interest, but... Yeah, it's more kind of like you know post-colonial um, mm-hmm. responses and, and thinking about the future of the Muslim world and stuff like that. But I mean, I I don't know if that meant meant to be like a sophisticated nod in that direction. Maybe it is strange that you know from Andalus they wouldn't go to what would make more sense, like Morocco. No, right? It has you to know, be all Egypt. the way, all the way to Egypt. And I also there's like an establishing shot of like the pyramids, so you know you're in Egypt. Right? Yeah. No. No. Definitely. <laughs> like of all things. So he he goes to Egypt and then comes back from mm-hmm. Egypt in like an hour, mm-hmm. um, yeah, yeah. and you know they're they're burning Ibn Rushd's books. Mm-hmm. Um, the caliph like immediately after having like ordered the book burning and the banishment of Ibn Rushd like feels really guilty about it. Uh, there is also this bizarre bit that I did not catch the first time we watched the film that I did the second time where they've like got their whole like wagon packed up with all the stuff from their house because they're being kicked out and Ibn Rush like starts chatting with his wife and he's like I have this bench remember I couldn't forget the bench remember our first night and I'm just like A why is this necessary and B that does not look like a comfortable bench for them to have had sex on and like why is that like thought to be like an accurate portrayal of like medieval Islamic high culture and like gender relations I mean well and it's also just part of this like right like Ibn Rushd is in this film he can't just be like a thinker who has these ideas that are in some circles controversial he also has to like love food and music and dancing and singing and and also be like very like sex positive and very like nice to women like yeah yeah he's all those things he really is the best uncle right when actually in fact like if you like read him and like I can't remember. Doesn't he basically say that, like, he actually, like, is kind of, like, met on whether, like, women are, like, equal to, like, able to understand philosophy? This is interesting. I'm having an article come out of this. So among all the medieval Islamic philosophers in that line of, you know, what we would think of as the technically, like, people in the Greek philosophy veins, Mm -hmm. the the philosopher, he is, and people don't fully understand why, extremely positive. Hmm. so he, in his commentary on the Republic, actually does agree and say that women can be philosophers, women could be uh, philosopher kings. And in fact, the fact that um, we have this gender stereotype and don't look at, you know, whether a man or a woman just has the ability to participate in certain discourses uh, prevents societies from achieving their full potential. And hmm. they're wasting good, you know, leaders and thinkers by not having women so yeah, maybe so. maybe Ibn Rush really was this nice. Yeah, I mean, so there's an interesting kind of contemporary revival, and another reason why people are enthusiastic about Ibn Rush is mm. that, especially compared to somebody, let's say like Al Ghazali, but even somebody like Al Farabi, who's more of an, another philosophical thinker, he does have a what we would say of a more positive or egalitarian. Mm-hmm. He also has horrendous ideas about like you know. Uh, he's a, he's an ableist and and um, yes, I mean he very much is. I mean you know in the way in the, in the way that all of these uh, you know philosophers are like there's very much like a lot of intellectual elitism. Like some people right. can handle philosophy and some people are simply too dumb. Right, but they so and and Ibn Rushd <laughs> definitely agrees. And the ones who are too dumb, it's better for society if we get rid of them. Mm-hmm. But he does include in the ones who could potentially be smart enough women, and hmm. that is interesting. Yeah, um, and in fact, some people suggest that might have been one of the reasons that he fell out of favor with the. 
um, interesting ruling elites. Very we have not a lot of things to verify. And interesting, maybe I add that this is not something he only shows in in the Repu- in his commentary on, on Plato's Republic, but in his own juridical work. So he, he has a famous juridical work in his school, in his uh, Islamic legal school that um, it's called the the Juris Prima, and in it uh, we see you know how he thinks about certain cases, and consistently mm-hmm. he tries to take judgments or reason away that is good for women yeah so hmm. he really seeks through his juridical decisions also to empower hmm. women which is interesting very interesting yeah. um yeah hmm. and kind of yeah doesn't really come out in the film except for right. this kind of more like leery yeah side notes and i guess the way yeah. in which they try to portray his household is almost egalitarian. very very egalitarian yeah, yeah in terms of the the vibe of the household yeah, right so. that you know he he never like tells his wife to shut up when no you know. never 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 he's, he's very very nice and he's, he's fine with his daughter making out in corridors with maybe he's just a social client whoever. maybe he just wants to be the father-in-law <laughs> to the next caliph but he also doesn't really like it's like not entirely clear at first whether she's going to end up with like joseph or nasser and he also doesn't seem to particularly mind her like no like having this like arguably inappropriately close relationship with this like christian teen that he's taken into his household maybe he's also just you know a great champion of interfaith relations <laughs> A common uh, belief in the 12th century. Yeah. That it's fine for your daughter specifically to marry a man of another faith. Yeah, no. But I'm just saying, (laughs) real popular idea. Yeah, of how he's the nicest man. So he has to flee. We're almost at the end. Yeah, and we end on this like oddly sort of like happy note, right? Where the books are being burned, but we have learned that copies of them are safe in Egypt. And so Ibn Rush is like very cheery about it all. And we end with the inscription that yeah. ideas have wings. No one can stop their flight. Yeah. So very right. much about the, the power of ideas to withstand suppression. What are those ideas? Unclear. But no one can stop them. Right. And that's really the part that I'm just confused because it gives the film like this this much deeper and kind of yeah significance that we just don't see or get any hint of throughout the film i mean yes i understand that you know it connects with these great efforts they take to protect the books right mm-hmm. so those are the ideas and in the end you know despite the best efforts of the sect and the kind nobody can suppress those even though they do a pretty good job of burning and getting rid of the you right. know i mean so I mean, I almost want to say my my reading was, you know, the idea is that Ibn Rushd here, we have this enlightened, important thinker. And despite longstanding kind of factions and divisions in the Muslim world and efforts to criticize and, you know, he will have a lasting influence. Right? Mm-hmm. I think that's one way we can take it. But that's just sort of, yeah, almost orientalizing. Um, and, Right. And as I said, I just feel like it also really rings hollow without us having any sense of yeah, what no. his ideas are and yeah. why we should think that they matter. No, no. I think it's kind of, it's very assumed on the get, from the get-go that, of course, we, we feel really good that yeah, Ibn Rush is a good guy because he wants to bring reason to religion. I mean, it, yeah. I think he likes reason students, and he's a very nice man. Exactly. And the people who are reasonable are nice. They don't come in weird costumes and do scary dances and stab other people. You know, I think one of our students wrote about this is, yeah, it's a great illustration of, like, the old religion versus reason. Yes. Enlightenment. It's like, yeah, but did we need a film to, like, 
in you know throw, throw a spotlight on that false dichotomy yet right. again uh, yeah um, yeah it so, wasn't the first and it won't be the last no and, and in that particular case there is so much i mean it seems almost if this film hadn't been made by muslim or like in a in the context of egypt i would have been like yeah of course here you have the old trope of the golden age and yes and, and people being like oh ibn rush the last of the enlightened thinkers but don't worry we couldn't kill him and his ideas will come again right. and some sort of you know vision about the coming golden age or something but to come out of the context, you know, it's it's almost it's, yeah yeah. I mean, yeah. So so that I think is a good uh, a good lead oh. into spending some time talking about the uh, historical accuracy and lack thereof right of this film. So I want you to go back by starting with some things at the very beginning with uh, Gerard Bruy, who is the translator of Averroes, who is executed. So first of all, this person does not exist. Right. Like, this is a completely invented person. Neither he nor anyone else was in, you know, this context or in general, was executed for translating the works of Ibn Rushd, in particular because nobody actually thought it was a problem, particularly to translate the works of Ibn Rushd. And which I find fascinating and then in particular. So even when you get into, you know, Thomas Aquinas, right, right. In, and which is already, you know, this is like 80 years later, he is critical of Ibn Rushd on various specific grounds, but also very clearly is relying very heavily on his thought. Mm-hmm. And the idea isn't even necessarily that like nobody should read Ibn Rushd, it's that we should be careful who's allowed to read Ibn Rushd because certain people might go too far and use the wrong parts of his work. But he's still generally accepted as, uh, you know, like, okay, this is, like, the gold standard, essentially, for, like, commentary on Aristotle. And his name is The Commentator. People yes. rely on him yeah. for a long time. And his, I mean, his particular, his commentary on Aristotle, and mm-hmm. to some extent, some... In that to... context, right, he's also one of, like, two, maybe three Muslims who Dante uh, places right. in, uh, in limbo. So with, essentially, the people who are non-Christians who he likes is basically the category. And it's mostly like, you know, luminaries of the classical tradition. It's mostly various like Greek and Roman figures. And it's like, and basically like next to Aristotle is the commentator. Yeah, he's, we see him in the school of Athens. I mean, he's, yeah. And and, uh, Ibn Rushd himself would have said, you know, certain discourses for certain people. He would have even agreed with that probably to some extent. So yeah, I don't, we talked about this from the beginning, but yeah. I'll also note as well that there apparently seems to be no, like, trial or procedure whatsoever surrounding this person's execution. And that if he is, in fact, sentenced, you know, for heresy, he would have been had, like, they would have actually had to hand him over to the secular arm for execution. Uh, The church isn't, is actually, like, is not supposed to or able to carry out that execution independently. And, of course, we can't have that because we have to have, like, religion is bad. And so we can't, like, muddy the waters by having, like, you know, some local, like, secular... Yeah, and they were clearly not... The the makers of the film were clearly not interested in any of those kind of details, right? That the only thing that was necessary or wanted was the shots of this man's dying face right. in the flame. So. Right. And yeah. the context of Langdok in particular, I also found interesting in that, first of all, it's interesting from the perspective of, like, in the late 12th century, there are a lot of people being executed for heresy, but mm-hmm. it's, like, actual things that were considered heresy mm-hmm. at the time. It's mm-hmm. the uh, the Cathars um, who, you know, have were this kind of dualist sect, at least, is, is represented. So, you know, not, in fact, just, like, people who like philosophy. 
also an interesting setting in that Langdok and uh, Provence are also one of the areas associated in particular with the Maimonidean controversy mm-hmm. so that the Jewish community right. is very much grappling with the question of, uh, you know, a little bit after this. But as we move into the 13th century, they're very much grappling with what we do with the work of our own philosopher you know, who is also somebody who is, like, very invested in, like, the use of Aristotle and how that then impacts your reading of revealed scripture. And in fact, like, there are, you know, contexts in which, like, they are actually then, again, this is later, but in which they are, like, burning copies of the Mm -hmm. works of Maimonides, like, within the Jewish community. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But A, it's a lot later, and B, it's very much, like, not what's going on in this context, and C, like, God forbid we see a Jew. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I think the the political issue here of just writing out the entire Jewish community and yeah. the connections between the deep and tight connections between Jewish and Islamic medieval philosophies. Yeah. And then so that's like the worst part of the whole film. Yeah. And then that's something that we've sort of touched on a little bit earlier, but yeah, I'll just kind of add that as well as that the film then, yeah, makes this move where there are a lot of contexts where Jews would make sense. The Roma seem like they are probably like a stand-in arguably for Jews. Uh, there was an article that I came across that mm. actually kind of made that argument specifically. And I think that does make sense, especially given that like there's no Roma population right. in, Al- in Al-Andalus. Like that doesn't actually make any sense. Mm-hmm. So that's very much just like a historical presence that then, yeah, seems like it's very possibly a replacement because they didn't want to, for political reasons, get into depicting Jews positively and positively depicting a, like, you know, relationship and interconnection between Jews and Muslims. Or even at all, you know, just thinking about, you know, Egyptian recent history and in the Middle East and relations with, you know, different states. So I think that's probably where that's from, but interesting choice to make. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. We do have a couple of references to real people. Mm. Uh, the film briefly references uh, the poet Abu Nuwas, who at least we can say, okay, that's a real poet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, the film also represents uh, uh, references briefly Ibn al-Haytham, whose name is then Latinized as al-Hazm. And he is described as having uh, invented this weird telescope mm-hmm. <laughs> that Ibn Rushd and Marwan are using to spy on the sect and find Abdullah. This is like this very weird move where they just like decided for the plot that they needed to have a telescope. And so they picked this guy who is, you know, an 11th century astronomer and scientist. And he's known for his work on optics, which and like work with lenses, which arguably was then useful for the eventual development of the telescope. But that is not the same as he had this telescope that he, I don't know, invented and gave to Ibn Rushd or whatever. Yeah, like this weird. Yeah, yeah. Just like we need a telescope. Did we really? But yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Related to that, uh, material culture in this film is a real thing. A lot of it is the kind of all Islamic art is the same. Like, which I, like, especially, like, if it was not an Egyptian director, I feel like I would very much, like, mm-hmm. see the yeah. material culture as extremely Orientalist. Um, yeah, I mean, doesn't prevent it. Um, yeah. It's certainly all mishmashed together, as I said earlier. There we have this almost Aladdin sense of right. vaguely Middle Eastern, maybe North African. Yeah. We also see like Isnik wear tiles which right. don't aren't around you know, which are I mean, A, they're like from Turkey, but also even in terms of like then being like imported to other places later, like they're not around until the fifteenth century. Yeah, no. So but you know, all all Islamic art is the same, so we've gotta have that. 
But also at some point there's like some like weird background stained glass that looks like yep. the really like ugly stuff that they put in into cathedrals in Western Europe in the 1960s and 70s after it got wrecked in World War II. Yep, I remember. <laughs> I'm like, what? why is that? No, what aesthetically, but I was so confused by the content, honestly, that didn't even add any more to my confusion. Yeah, like the content is very confusing. And then every now and then I'd look at something in the background and just also be like, what? Yeah, no, Why are no. we like this? Why is, why is this like this? And we have some other kind of references. We've already talked a lot about this kind of odd Sufi fundamentalist right. dance cult and how it doesn't really fit. The film also makes the weird decision that it's kind of like plopping in these references to the Christians, yeah. but in like very weird ways. Like, first of all, there's this like, oh, at some point they're like, oh, they want peace. And it's like, do they? I don't think they do. And second, that, like, they weirdly attribute the entire current conflict to Christians' desire to get revenge after Saladin took Jerusalem, which was, like, eight years ago? Yeah. Yeah. News (laughs) travels fast. News travels fast, and the Christians have mobilized. Yeah. I mean, and they probably would have known about it at this point, but also it's, like, this is, that's not, like, the beginning of, like, Christians attempting to, like, take Muslim territory and all of those. I I mean, no. I feel like the Christians are just in line with the rest of the film, just a generally confused bunch. Yeah, like, they just kind of don't really, like, they want to reference them, but they don't really know what to do with them. No. (laughs) So, they're kind of a mess. Yeah, never fully developed, I'd say. Yeah. So the next segment is the uh, the Historia ad Veritas, uh, where uh, we're going to do a little bit more of a deep dive oh, yeah. into a particular area that, as, as we've already touched on a little bit, the film uh, doesn't necessarily handle super well, mm-hmm. which is Ibn Rushd. And uh, <laughs> what did he actually think? Because watching right. this film, who would know? So uh, is this my cue to tell us? Yes, what I'm gonna really I'm gonna thought? let you I'm gonna let you take the lead on this. Uh, or actually, I'm just gonna do a kind of very brief note, which feel free to add to it for our listeners who are maybe not especially familiar with this area. We are talking about medieval philosophy. A lot of the goal of medieval philosophy is to find common ground between faith, revealed scripture, and reason, which basically means Greek philosophy. Mm-hmm. And this is something that, you know, we have Jews, Christians, and Muslims all doing, and they are, you know, reading one another and interested in one another's work. This in particular, also very important to note that the uh, Islamic context is extremely, extremely important for this, because ultimately, in terms of, you know, seeing Greek philosophy becoming something that's accessible to people in Western Europe, that's mostly due to translations into Latin that are happening from uh, translations that were made into Arabic back in the, like, 8th, ninth century. Right, which were made often with the intermediary of Syria. So, right, right. But yeah, it uh, often, I think, people interested or having some sort of sense of, of medieval philosophy think that, you know... They were, all these great Latin people were reading the Greek, you know? Right, and they're when, not reading no. the Greek. I mean, they're reading they're reading Latin translations that okay, aren't yeah, even, right. yeah, they're not even from the Greek. They're Latin translations that were done from, you know, Greek to Syriac to Arabic, and then probably into Castilian, and then into Latin, or so, you right. know what I mean? So. And, I mean, at some point, you know, with Thomas Aquinas, for example, we do know that he gets fresh translations from yes. the Greek again, right into Latin, and so that has an impact. But, yeah, the I think the missing link or the, the excitement or kind of the centrality of, of Islamic philosophy is the way in which it, it is kind of connecting and, and crucial for all of medieval philosophy, let's put it that way. Um, yeah, so Ibn Rushd, I think one of the things to keep in mind or be, be aware of is that really with him, we're kind of at the end or the culmination of this movement of 
medieval Islamic, sometimes called Arabic philosophy, depending on whether you think it's just philosophy in Arabic or whether you think there's something mm-hmm. more Islamic to it. I, I believe it's more Islamic, but I mean, there's more than just the Arabic to it. Um, so he's really the combination, and he's in the West, so the Western Islamic lands in Al-Andalus. The the origin, so to speak, uh, of the uh, with, with, of Islamic philosophy, as you note, with the uh, Abbasid particular translation movement in the 8th century, 7th, 8th century, that started in Baghdad. Mm-hmm. And there we have figures like the Al-Kindi and Al-Farabi that I was mentioned before, kind of the, the early figures, and then we have some early Islamic philosophers, also not Andalus, but really Ibn Rushd is, is the, the beacon mm-hmm. and, and the culmination. And in the West, probably also the most famous mm-hmm. um, philosopher, mostly because um, he is really committed to writing these commentaries. So right. we have the short, we have the middle, the long commentaries, and, and um, often he, he we have multiple versions of his commentary on one mm-hmm. Aristotelian work, mm-hmm. particularly on, on Aristotle. And then because of how people are reading things in the context of, you know, medieval Western universities, it's very much that, like, the way they are reading Aristotle is then fundamentally shaped influenced by, by Ibn Rushd. Ibn Rushd, yes. yes. Yeah. And, and so he's absolutely crucial in that context. At the same time, in the, in the Muslim context, there are uh, voices, and they have been, you know, early on, uh, that are that are critical of mm-hmm. the kind of marriage, let's say, of Greek philosophy and and uh, Arabic, and with it, uh, the Islamic context or maybe mm-hmm. heritage um, that, of course, is closely associated with the Arabic always. So, particularly one of Ibn Rushd's kind of foils is this famous, maybe the famous, uh, most famous uh, Muslim theologian Al Ghazali. They write books uh, refuting each other, uh, and and this entirely there really is it, it, why am I mentioning this? Is that Ibn Rushd becomes of the symbol for what kind of philosophy is wrong. Mm-hmm. So often the idea is that with Ibn Rushd, all Islamic philosophy ends, philosophy dies at the end of the golden era of mm-hmm. the time when when era, um, Muslim societies were not just really smart and reading Plato and Aristotle, but also invented telescopes and were enlightened and progressive and had all the things, and that all dies. And then fanatical interpretations take over. Well, that's not true. So we have something now called the phenomenon of post-classical Islamic philosophy. So the, the the way in which philosophical work continued after Ibn Rushd. But with Ibn Rushd, we, we see the end of this kind of more traditional or classical Islamic philosophy of reading Aristotle. And in his lifetime, as I mentioned and before already, people have become critical of it. And that's mm-hmm. what, we, what we see reflected in the film. The critiques are not of reading philosophy or being <laughs> enlightened or using your reason, but more specific, nitty-gritty theological problems mm-hmm. of really what is God like, mm-hmm. what does God know, what does God care about, mm-hmm. um, and, and so there. And also how much you know does a general believer know, how much mm-hmm. should certain knowledge be reserved for some groups, mm-hmm. Things like that. So what we would think of as more esoteric bends, maybe mm-hmm. in philosophy, that people are becoming critical of. Um, and questions of kind of yeah. precedence as well, right? That ultimately, if there is a disagreement between the Quran and Greek philosophy, right. which then kind of wins out in terms of ultimately thinking yeah. about how you are understanding the world. And one of the things also that he says, right, is that like, well, if there is such a disagreement, uh, you can interpret the Quran allegorically. Yeah, I mean, there there are lots of kind of detailed question of, of um, his specific, he has multiple works on this exact right. question of how to think of the relationship between 
uh, reason and revealed knowledge. Mm-hmm. And, and there, in fact, uh, the, the scholars up to this day are debating the nitty-gritty details. Uh-huh. But that is certainly something that people take issue with. The question yes. of whether maybe some people in the Ibn Rushd's mind were particularly intelligent or able to make distinctions mm-hmm. in Revelation or kind of uh, decide how they're relating to Revelation in a way that appears to take authority away right. from, from the revealed text. He certainly was a champion of reason and mm-hmm. of for some people, though I mean right. he's a deep elitist, uh, yes. right? We're, this is Only something some to remember. people are yeah. able to do this. Most people just should not get into this. No, at and, all. and are well served by religion. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think this is also what the film deeply gets wrong. I mean, yes. Ibn Rushd was in fact deeply embedded in the religious structures of his society. Yes. He does not want yeah. to abolish any of that. He just also has sort of very niche ideas about yeah certain people's abilities to be more in touch with with a version of the truth that that could be seen as in competition with revealed knowledge yeah and, and that's where i'll say this film also is i think interesting from the perspective of tropes that i see and mm-hmm. discuss a lot on this podcast uh which i you know have also seen in a lot of films that are set in western contexts is that they really seem intent on mapping onto the medieval past very modern ideas Mm -hmm. about the kind of disparity Mm -hmm. between faith and Mm -hmm. reason Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and seem to think therefore that okay so we need to have a person who is this kind of champion of Mm -hmm. reason and rational thinking and who is basically a modern almost like quasi-atheist that we plop into the say 12th century and we can't have somebody who is invested in reason and philosophy and rational thinking, but who also has deep, meaningful religious commitments. Yeah, and I think the film gets out really badly. I mean, Ibn Rushd is kind of displayed as, uh, yeah, I guess I'm also part of this whole Islam thing, which is like, (laughs) this is not who Ibn Rushd... I mean, there are some Islamic philosophers, particularly earlier ones, who this kind of image could be more accurate or would get at something where, you know, are they really Muslim or are they, like, window dressing and... You know, but Ibn Rushd is really wearing multiple heads, and mm-hmm. you don't become the the grand judge. I mean, <laughs> by like being half asked about your religion. I mean, right, and like not spending decades of studying it and writing yeah. manuals in your juridical school. Right, because it should also um, be emphasized again for our audience yeah. who includes some people who are you know not not yeah. medievalists. Right, that when we're talking about somebody who's a judge, we mean essentially that we are talking about judgment in accordance with. A oh, legal, yeah. a set of, you know, yeah. legal structures that are, you know, obviously there's a lot of commentary and development, et cetera, but that are supposed to be fundamentally rooted in the Quran. I mean, we are yeah, talking about yeah, a, yeah, yeah. like, faith-based legal, like, legal system. We are not talking about, like, what we would call a secular legal system. No, and, and some of those structures exist, but he is really the most important figure in his Islamic legal school. Yeah. He is yeah. a religious figure. Yeah. A religious leader. Um... Uh. Yes. <laughs> it's also very smart, but um, yeah, I think it's it's really hard to kind of... Uh, yeah. Well, and those things are compatible, right? And this is, oh, a, this is yeah. another big trope, is that people are either smart and atheist, or people are religious and very stupid. Right. In most films set in the Middle Ages. Right, right, right. <laughs> and I mean, I, I think what the film gets at, of course, is that he is... 
so famous for his commentary work on Aristotle, which doesn't mm-hmm. strike us as particularly related to Islam, right? Mm-hmm. But this is, you know, where my own research comes in. Even in that work, we see him use, he talks about that, idioms, ideas that belong to or connect with the Muslim context. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, he has this important function as a, you know, Greek philosophy commentator, but... Uh, he is not a proto-secularist or something no, like no, that. So not by I any think, stretch of the imagination. Yeah, yeah. so I think um, he's really an interesting figure. He is also very readable in this particular. He is, mm-hmm. um, you know, if anybody's more interested, there are some really good uh, English translations of some of his works more aimed at the Muslim community, thinking mm-hmm. about faith and the, or the relationship between revelation and reason. I mean, his commentaries on Aristotle... I'm not a particular riveting read for you know somebody who just wants to pick up some Ibn Rush, <laughs> but um, his his so um, his shorter treatises on on religion mm-hmm. are really uh, uh, yeah interesting and and give you a good sense of, of this kind of his multiple commitments and interests. Yeah, which you know I mean he is I think then a very interesting figure in mm. ways that this film uh, fundamentally does not want to engage with. No, and in some ways the film almost connects to another aspect of what sometimes is called the the Avera is a phenomenon or the Ibn Rushd kind of a phenomenon of, of he really becomes both in the colonial and post-colonial period this um, thing, this rallying point for thinking about what has gone wrong with the Muslim world. They had this figure who, you know, almost single-handedly gave Western Europe reason. Right. And then what look what happened to the Muslim world now, right? Yeah. So that often, you know, it does get pinned on Ibn Rushd and when right. he died, it all died. And so those tropes and those questions of like singular historical narratives and um, questions of superiority and uh, civilizational decline and mm-hmm. all those, they do interestingly connect with Ibn Rushd and, and also questions, even in the contemporary period of like, who still reads Ibn Rushd in the Arab uh-huh. world and why? And um, why is he more read in, you know, other circles and things like that. So th- the film almost interestingly contributes to that. All. It's, yeah. a, it's an own area of research, mm-hmm. of, of thinking about how people have used Ibn Rushd, essentially, yeah. in, in contemporary discussions of, of, um, yeah, of modern Islam. But the film is more like an object of study in that it doesn't actively contribute. Yes. Yeah. So, anyways. Yeah. So, uh, anything else you want to add before we move on to our... No, I think, I mean, I, I wanted to emphasize and I kind of share that I, my sense, of, you've mentioned this repeatedly, my sense also for our students was they were grateful to have had a film about Ibn Rush. I think that's a positive yeah. thing. You know, there aren't that many films even, you know, marketed at the general public about Maimonides or Al-Farabi no. or even Thomas Aquinas, even though I'm not sure, you know. Um, <laughs> Do we want a film about yeah. Thomas Aquinas? It's probably really boring, but, um, you know, so there's this Less element sex. that... I, <laughs> less gratuitous Roma dancing. Um, so I think I appreciate that. I appreciate that we ha- were able to show a film that was, you know, unlike The Physician, made in Egypt, mm-hmm. pre- predominantly in Arabic, puts an emphasis on immigration. Yeah. But it almost makes up, I mean, it's almost nullified, I want to say, by how bad the film was. So I'm yeah. like in two minds. I, I think my, our students were able to watch a film and they learned, we had the opportunity to tell them about Ibn Rushd, about this really exciting and so crucial field of Islamic philosophy that people aren't really that aware of Mm -hmm. but I really wish the film had been a bit more in tune with actually what's going on with Ibn Rush yes so yeah the you mentioned the name but we never get any substance so that yeah I just kind of 
wanted to urge that like we are getting a great figure here. Yeah, Just shame how bad the film is. Yeah, and that is you know, and that is a, a constant in things that I talk about in this podcast and my you know medieval mm-hmm. at the movies course and in other things. Right, is that so? We we have you know all of these. And we have a lot of people who I think in some ways kind of think about, oh, can I learn history from films? And the answer almost certainly is no, mm-hmm. because they they oversimplify. They're not interested in getting into a lot of the kind of nuances or even details about, you know, what's actually happened or certainly not about, you know, what people think. Right, right. And, uh, and it is, I could see how it is hard to make a film that gives you a better, I think you could do a yeah. better job than this. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe then uh, that that's a good lead into the next segment, the Fabula Nostra, where mm-hmm. we come up with a uh, film or other piece of media inspired by this one. I will say in addition to, uh, I, I think I don't want the Thomas Aquinas movie, which right. I am at, which at the very least, I don't, I don't think they could pull off having Thomas Aquinas seem like the uh, nicest man in Paris. Right. Uh, <laughs> the way they do with Ibn Rushd. I will say from the perspective, again, of this podcast and of having watched like so many of these movies, the other thing that I did appreciate about this film is that so, so many of the movies set in the medieval period are set in like England and France. And I'm very, right. very bored of England and France. Yeah, yeah. And so I do appreciate also having, you know, a film set in this context of Al-Andalus, even if I wish it was a better one. My kind of thought for the film that I would like to see in the world, mm-hmm. especially kind of thinking about the exclusion of Jews in this particular film, would be, I think, something kind of centered on the poetic circles mm. uh, in the Umayyad Caliphate of Cordoba. So kind of moving back into the uh, the 10th century. Mm-hmm. Um, so that there's this uh, kind of conflict, this kind of you know, like conflict over like poetry and how to do Hebrew poetry and how mm-hmm. it relates to Arabic poetry. Uh, between these two poets, Dunashib and Labrat and Menachem ben Saruk. Meanwhile, uh, their mutual patron, another member of the Jewish community, Chastai ben Shaprut, he then works very closely with the with the caliph at the time, Abd al-Rahman III, at this moment where they're kind of trying to separate Al-Andalus both from the Abbasid Caliphate and based in Baghdad, and simultaneously the Jewish community is kind of doing the same thing and trying to lessen their... Uh, kind of intellectual, cultural, religious dependence mm-hmm. on uh, the rabbinic, on the kind of rabbinic centers in Baghdad. Uh, so I think this could be this could be a kind of interesting mm-hmm. move. And also, I think honestly, we need more movies set of the Middle Ages that have zero Christians. Yeah. So my alternative, I had two alternatives, and they both for that mold. One, I thought about it would be really touching to have like a fake friendship between Maimonides and Ibn Rush. Yeah. Like that would be like a touching, like like two old men in the sea kind of movie. Yeah. So I would like that, and just like have like fun community, like Muslim Jewish community shots, and thinking about like the ways in which they like live together and what they shared, and mm-hmm. also maybe like difference you know like i don't know yeah. that could be like an entertaining film the other thing that i would love to see is um um ibn to fail mm-hmm. ibn rush's predecessor at the court mm-hmm. introduced ibn rush to the uh the previous ruler and and you know that's how ibn rush's career really started as, yeah. a, as a commentator i would love to see a film about that yeah yeah that'd be really interesting that'd be like a court setting yeah. and you know having court intrigue and the young ibn rush yeah also no christians needed in either of those films mm-hmm. but also no Roma dancing. So I, I would, I mean, less I think all Roma three dancing. of maybe less. <laughs> We're yeah. settled on like the less dancing. But all three of those, I think, yeah, I would like them. I also just like say like, just like one quick additional like note on Maimonides is also just like, by the way, for anybody interested in like this intersection that we've talked about between uh, 
Muslim and Jewish philosophy and philosophers. Like, Maimonides is writing in Arabic, like, his uh, kind of, like, Jewish legal material he's writing in Hebrew, but his kind of big philosophical opus, The Guide for the the Perplexed, is written in Arabic. Or Judeo-Arabic, which is basically Arabic written in a Hebrew alphabet. I mean, it's, I mean, he's essentially writing in Arabic, but yeah, but, you know, using this Hebrew alphabet and has to be translated into Hebrew, which is happening in southern France, actually, like, a little bit after this period. So that would also, I think, be interesting. That's where Joseph's family could come in, though. Yeah. Actually is... I'm trying to remember, actually, the first name is... I'm I'm trying to remember... uh, So Ibn Tibon, uh, Maimonides' first kind of translator and somebody who he, like, worked with. I think Joseph might be his first name, actually. That's interesting. Oh, yeah. Is it Joseph Ibn Tibon? I don't remember. I'm looking it up. This could be, could also be wrong. Uh, not, uh, no, he is yeah. Samuel Ibn Tibon. I was just going to say. Okay, I've said okay. Joseph seems wrong. Okay, no, he's he's not yeah. Joseph. I was like, is Samuel? he Joseph? That would yeah. be interesting. But no, so it is It is not a yeah. Joseph. But but that would actually, like, make sense, right? If we wanted to do this, like, Southern France connection, that would be the other film that would be interesting, would actually be something about, like, the, like, translations mm-hmm. of Maimonides and then, like, kind of moving into the Maimonidean yep. controversy. Yep. I think would be really fascinating. Yep. I would second that. Yeah. Then, then I guess we have to have some Christians. On the side. Like, on, they can on do the some side. dancing. The they can do some gratuitous <laughs> dancing. I'd be okay with that. That'd be fun. They can... <laughs> the Dominicans love dancing, famously. Friars. The Dominicans. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, oh, yes. Party yes vibe. Friars, specifically, not no. uh, other Dominicans. <laughs> they have a kind of party vibe. <laughs> do they? <laughs> they really don't. <laughs> they have a kind of dour vibe. Yeah, they really do. <laughs> So, with that, I think we can get into the uh, the estimatio or rating. We rate this film on a scale of one yeah. to five. Five being the highest based on five? whatever subjective criteria you see fit. Uh, I've given a couple fives, and I think pretty much all of the fives I've given are like emotional fives rather than oh. quality fives, honestly. Oh. Like, Lord of the Rings got a five. Oh, okay, now I understand. You know, like... Fine, like Lord of the Rings gets like a nostalgia five. Like I think there have been a couple other things that like, like the like the BBC TV show Merlin. I think oh. ended up getting a five, and it oh, was like God. a five based on like my like experience of joy watching this show, despite the fact that like objectively it does not deserve a five. I see. So, okay, so I need to so figure yeah. that in. All right, so I think what's my only fives esti- have been like yeah, linked to like emotional attachment to the material. Essentially, I would say, which I do not have in this particular case. I don't even have because I hardly see anything on my internet. Yeah, I think, I I mean, I would want to give, film-wise, I would give it a one out of five, but because at least we have Ibn Rushd in it, and it's refreshing and different, uh-huh. I think two out of five is... Yeah, I was going to settle on a two as well. Like, I've I've seen things worse than this oh, for this too. podcast. Yeah. No, yeah. Uh, I mean, and, it's not and, a three. in general. It's not a three. No, so. it's definitely not a three, but I've definitely seen things that are worse... It's not a good movie. I think it would also be... This movie is two hours and 15 minutes. It does not need to be two hours and 15 minutes. I think this would be a better movie if it was like half an hour or so shorter. And so that's, I think, part of it as well that I think this movie, like, like, it doesn't need to be that long. It is not that good. I think it's getting it's getting a two for me basically because I've seen a number of things that are significantly worse. Right. And because I have appreciation at least for I'm always happy to watch a movie which is not like a very grayscale film about war in England or France. 
which is way too many of the films that I watch. So, you know, props for that, but I don't feel like I can give it higher than a two. No, does not deserve that. So, Risa, thank you so much for joining me for this conversation. Are there places where the listeners could find you on the internet if they so desired? I am very much off the internet, I feel. (laughs) Um, But yes, I mean, my Rhodes website and... That also lists my email, so that's where people could find me and my work, and uh, they should keep an eye out for my forthcoming book on Islamic philosophy, particularly human nature. But I'm not, not too much on Twitter or any of those uh, <laughs> platforms. I'm very medieval in that way. <laughs> I mean, probably for the best. I constantly regret being on Twitter. Uh, but nevertheless, this podcast is online in its various forms. So if you've enjoyed, please subscribe in your preferred podcatcher app and rate and review, especially on Apple Podcasts. I'll read new five-star reviews in future episodes. Please also follow the podcast on Twitter at MediaEvilPod and join our Facebook group. And you can find me on Twitter for as long as it exists and Instagram at Sarah Iftdecker. If you have any questions or suggestions, I'd love to hear from you via email at media.evilpod at gmail.com. So Risa, thank you again. Thank you for having me. This has been great. And thank you all for listening to Media Evil. Bye.